It's an honor and privilege to be here with you today. Two of you made reference to Psalm 103. This used to be a single sheet of paper. It's now falling apart. When I received notice that I was going to Iraq in 2003, I printed out Psalm 103, and I put it in my wallet, and it's been with me ever since. So for those of you who mentioned it today as being very significant in your life, it's very significant in my life as well. So, I learned to preach in the 1970s. I'm a dinosaur. We were taught that sermons are structured to have a thesis statement supported by three major points. Additionally, a poem and a shaggy dog story were thrown in for good measure. This gives us the well-known three-point sermon. Supposedly, this comes from the Middle Ages when a point was for the Father, one for the Son, and one for the Holy Spirit. Uh, That's probably not true, but it makes a great story. Well, that's how I was taught to preach, but I'm not going to do that today. Instead, today I'm going to give you a sermon with three poems, one point, two takeaways, and there'll be several references to shaggy dogs and cats. (laughs) Now, just so you'll understand, the two takeaways... In Puritan talk, that's called application. Puritans would do a sermon, get it right up to the end and say, here's what you do with it. Now, I'm just updating it a little bit. There are two takeaways, and if you remember those two takeaways, you will get what I have to say today. The first poem is from the late 19th century English poet William Ernest Henley. The title is Invictus. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I think whatever God's may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade. And yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate How charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Now that's quite a mouthful, isn't it? Henley, as a young man, had to undergo the amputation of one foot. And then years later, he almost lost his good leg. So he had a rough time, and he died early at 54 years of age. And his poem epitomizes that famous British trait, the stiff upper lip, This poem has made the rounds. For example, in the House of Commons in September 1941, Winston Churchill paraphrased the last two lines of the poem stating, we are still masters of our fate, we're still captains of our soul, at a time when the Nazis had thoroughly imperiled the British Empire. And the line, bloody but unbowed, showed up in the Daily Mirror's headline the day after the July 2005 bombings on British buses and trains. But there's something else in this point. It's not only an element of defiance, but there's even arrogance towards God. As the last stanza borrows from the King James Version of the Bible the reference to a straight gate. And look, this entire poem is just simply off the rails. Does anyone here believe that you are the master of your fate? The captain of your own soul? Jonah and I plan to go to Charleston in September of this year. Well, that didn't happen. Dorian came for a visit. 
And do you think the folks in the Bahamas would claim to be masters of their own fate, captains of their own soul? You think the families of all those Californians who were trapped in their cars and burned to death last year would claim mastery over their own fate? The Bible warns us against such arrogance. The Bible tells us that our own ways are too frequently the way of death. Isaiah 53, 6 indicts those who seek their own way. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And Proverbs 3, 5 through 7, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. There's yet another problem with the Invictus approach to life, and for that we turn to our second poem. This one is by Jane Kenyon, an American poet who died in 1995 at the age of 48. As someone who has mild depression myself, I recognize in her poems a certain streak of depression. This poem is titled, Otherwise. I got out of bed on two strong legs. It might have been otherwise. I ate cereal, sweet milk, ripe, flawless peach. It might have been otherwise. I took the dog uphill to the birch wood. All morning I did the work I love. At noon I lay down with my mate. It might have been otherwise. We ate dinner together at a table with silver candlesticks. It might have been otherwise. I slept in a bed in a room with paintings on the walls and planned another day just like this day. But one day I know it will be otherwise. Otherwise intrudes when it chooses and often without warning. December 7th, 1941, otherwise came to Pearl Harbor and the Pacific Fleet. November 22nd, 1963, otherwise, without warning, came to the Dallas School Book Depository as shots rang out and a president died. On September 11, 2001, uh, otherwise came as the Twin Towers were shattered and thousands died. Brothers and sisters, life is full of otherwise moments. And if that is so, you are not and cannot be the master of your own fate. Otherwise, attacks the familiar, the comfortable, the routine, often without any warning. At other times, otherwise telegraphs its presence through a, a discomfort in the air, a, a feeling that something is just not quite right, or maybe a sense of foreboding. When I first preached this text last year, we had two outside cats, both about 13, 14 years of age. We got those cats about the time I got back from Iraq, so they've been running up to greet me every day for about 15 years. But I saw something happening before my eyes, the yellow tabby, Milo. It was getting too old to jump from the fence, up onto the fence, and then jump onto the porch. I noticed the little gray cat was also getting slow. They would still come to see me, but one day I said to myself, this is going to be otherwise. Well, back in November, I preached on this text on Sunday, the 18th. And on Tuesday the 20th, otherwise appeared, and I found the yellow tabby in his favorite window, curled up and dead. 
At the trivial end of otherwise, over the years, I have said goodbye to a pound full of shaggy dogs. Blackie, Whitey, Speedy, Puddin', Andy, Patches, Chubber, Jake, Zoe. In most instances, in most instances, old age or disease telegraph the otherwise moments. But in a few tragic instances, the squeal of breaking tires and a sickening thump announced that otherwise had intruded. On a more profound level, I've said goodbye to my mother, father, grandmother, grandfather, to Joan's mother, to Joan's father, to Joan's brother, to a host of fellow soldiers and friends, including my best friend from high school who died way too young of a heart attack. I mentioned I first preached this sermon from this text in November. I preached to a small congregation of 40 people, eight families, at that time otherwise had impacted that congregation the last 30 days as two of those eight families had lost loved ones. And as witnessed this morning in our testimony time, otherwise has visited many of the families of this church recently. As you said, goodbye to loved ones, suffered through health issues, or struggled with some other form of family brokenness. There is a regularity in the universe that bears witness to God's sovereign decree and his wise control of all things. Genesis 8 tells us, while the earth remains, sea time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. But sometimes otherwise occurs. Here as our text begins, Jesus and the disciples are leaving the temple. Now you have to go back up to the previous chapter. They've been sitting there watching people come and give their gifts. And the last thing recorded is the widow who stumbles in the arthritis and all kinds of issues that come with age, opens up her little purse and pulls out the last two remaining pennies, two little copper coins, and puts them in. This is the context. And we're told, as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Jesus said to him, you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Jesus said, it looks great now, but otherwise it's on its way. We're not told there was any response to these words as the disciples made the 25-minute walk from the temple down to the Kidron Valley and up to the Mount of Olives. But they were certainly reflecting on this startling news. In the first century, the temple was the center of Jewish life. And its destruction in AD 70 marked the end of the Jewish nation. So you can count on this. What Jesus said rocked the disciples to their foundation. And when they arrived at the Mount of Olives, which is up higher than the Temple Mount, it was possible to look down on the golden temple with its white marble environs. Herod had expanded the second temple, and it was improved over a period of 40 years. And in the time of Jesus, the temple and its precincts, all the territory, constituted one-sixth of the geographical footprint of the city of Jerusalem. Historians tell us that some of the largest stones in the temple weighed over 500 tons. Now, this is one of those things that makes me think space aliens must have come and built this. How in the world, when all you've got are donkeys and ropes, how do you get a 500-ton rock 
to a move. But with that stunning view of the temple and all its glory and magnificence, the words of Jesus must have been completely earth-shattering to the disciples. So it's then that James and John, Peter and Andrew, pull Jesus aside to have a, a private conversation. Mark 13, 4. Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign that these things are about to be accomplished? And the parallel passage of Matthew 24 also asks about, and when will be the end of time? After warning his disciples not to be led astray, Jesus gives them an answer. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he. They will lead many astray. When you hear wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of birth pains. Now look. Most of human history has involved warfare, hasn't it? Those times when there has been peace have been few and far between. And now in our world of 24-7 constant news and social media, if somebody gets shot on the dark side of the moon, we're going to know about it in a matter of minutes. And so we've all seen the AIDS epidemic, the Ebola virus, the hurricanes, the tsunamis, the wildfires. You name it, we've all seen it live on TV, exactly what Jesus talked about. Now, even as Nebuchadnezzar came in and destroyed the temple in 586 because of the people's unfaithfulness to the Lord, Jesus, now the Lord of the temple, pronounces the destruction of the second temple. It's going to happen. Now, how did it happen? Well, in AD 66, tensions broke open between the Roman authorities, the occupying force, and the Jews in Jerusalem. The Romans sacked the treasury, and so began what is known as the Great Revolt. In AD 68, Caesar Nero killed himself, and we entered into a period known as the, the year of the four Caesars, as one uh, Caesar, one uh, emperor took the place of the other until finally in 69, fellow by the name of Vespasian, Caesar Vespasian took control. Vespasian had a son named Titus. Titus was a general of the Roman legions, and so Vespasian sent Titus to Jerusalem. Titus arrived with four legions of Roman soldiers. There are 5,000 soldiers in a legion, and uh, what he did was this. He besieged the city. He placed three legions to the west of Jerusalem, one legion to the right, and within a matter of time, they had breached the walls, destroyed the city, and the temple was burned down and all of the stones upturned. Titus ringed the city with crucifixes, with cruciform um, crosses, with Jewish soldiers and deserters crucified. Now, the destruction of Jerusalem prefigures the end and gives us a sense of what the final destruction will be. 2 Peter 3.10 talks about the day of the Lord will come as a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar. But there's something else. Before you get to this declaration of destruction in 2 Peter 3.9, we read these words. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And we find this in our text this morning. In verse 13, Jesus promises that the one who endures to the end will be saved. Even in the midst of severe judgment, there is good news. God says this, you have sinned. 
and fallen short of my glory. God says, the soul that sins, it shall die. This is what you have earned, for the wages of sin is death. God says, I know exactly what you deserve. But I'm going to deal with you otherwise. The Lamb of God, sinless and spotless, will take your place. The death you have earned will fall upon him. The life that is intrinsically his will become a gift to you. You see, otherwise is not always necessarily an evil thing. And in the person of Christ, it is truly our only hope. And so now, I told you three poems, now we're up to number three, written by Dorothea Day. This is a poem that follows the exact structure of Invictus. But oh, what a different tone, what a different spirit. So listen carefully to this. The title is called My Captain. Out of the light that dazzles me, bright as the sun from pole to pole, I thank the God I know to be for Christ, the conqueror of my soul. Since his the sway of circumstance, I would not wince nor cry aloud. Under the rule which men call chance, my head with joy is humbly bowed. Beyond this place of sin and tears, that life with him and his the aid, that despite the menace of the years keeps and will keep me unafraid. I have no fear to straight the gate. He cleared from punishment the scroll. Christ is the master of my fate. Christ is the captain of my soul. Look, with Christ as our master, as our captain, we are certain he's in control of all things. And as we discussed, much of God's providential care involves regularity, cause and effect, predictability, morning and evening, seed time, and harvest. But I do believe this is an otherwise world in which the potential exists at any moment for joy to turn to sorrow and for the normal to be turned into chaos. Thousands of people in hundreds of locations today will attest this is an otherwise world. But not, this is not a reason for despair. And it is certainly not a reason to shake your fist defiantly at God as though you were the master of your own fate. In fact, in an otherwise world, you must have, you need Christ to be the master of your fate, the captain of your soul. Brothers and sisters, do you agree with me that this is an otherwise world? If so, now here it is. I told you we'd get to this Puritan thing. I'm going to give you two takeaways, two applications that are essential to living in an otherwise world. And they're real simple. The first takeaway, define carefully. Let me say that again. Define carefully. Let's be clear by what we mean by an otherwise world. First of all, what I do not mean is that this world is subject to luck, good luck or bad luck. Luck has nothing to do with the course of this world or the events that occur in your life. There is no such thing. The ancient Greeks believed in the fates, three old women who would spin thread, stretch it out and measure it, and then snip it blindly, determining the length of your life. Well, there's no such thing as fate. There is no such thing as fortune. There is no serendipity. There are no accidents. There are no coincidences. Instead, 
from a biblical perspective, we have something far more certain, far more powerful. God's works of providence. The Shorter Catechism defines this as his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. Or as simply stated in Westminster 3.1, God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. Now, it's not just catechism, it's not just confession, it's Bible. Hear these very strong words from Isaiah 45, 5 through 7. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Now, this is a very hard text. You're hearing this from a Calvinist systematic theology professor. This is a very hard text. But it doesn't teach that God is the author of sin. Rather, it teaches that good and evil and all in between are all part of God's infinitely wise plan to bring about the redemption of this world. Indeed, Isaiah is telling us there's no such thing as random in our otherwise world. Things may appear random at times because we don't see, we can't see all the moving parts. John Piper helps us grasp this. He writes, God is always doing 10,000 things in your life and you may be aware of three of them. When we define carefully, we realize our otherwise world is anything but uncertain because Christ is the master of our fate. Christ is the captain of our souls. Look, those of you who do jigsaw puzzles know how difficult it is early on when you have only random parts connected. Two or three over here and three or four over there and something else over here. No idea at all how this is all going to be worked out. You see, we only see a part of the puzzle, but there is good news. God sees the end from the beginning and knows exactly how every piece fits. As Corey Ten Boom said, there is no panic in heaven. God has no problems, only plans. Now, I like that, but I want to tighten it up just a little bit. Corey Ten Boom was not a Calvinist systematic theology professor, so let me tighten that up just a bit. God does not have plans. There is only one plan. There is plan A, period. There is no plan B, no plan C, no plan D. Remember something. The Lord doesn't miss the tiniest of detail. Remember our text begins with Jesus sitting in the temple watching this little old lady pull out the last bit of money that she had. He's watching that. He saw that. There are no details in your life that slip through the cracks. Define carefully. When you define carefully what an otherwise world is, you understand that it's necessary to see Christ as the master of our fate and the captain of our soul. Second takeaway. First one, define carefully. Second takeaway, believe confidently. Define carefully, believe confidently. See that? That's four words. Four words and you know everything that I've had to say today. 
Believe confidently. Our God is a God of infinite goodness, and he is at work in your life and mine to do what? To make us look like Jesus. He is a God of infinite wisdom who always knows the way forward. He is a God of infinite power who makes a way when there is no way. He is a God of infinite love who loves you more than you can ever imagine. Now, if we really believe that our good, holy, wise, all-powerful God is in control, we should be filled with confidence and joy. We should believe confidently. In Jeremiah 29, we have this wonderful promise given to the people of God exiled in Babylon. Remember now, they were sent off into Babylon because of their wickedness, their sin. And in Jeremiah 29, we have this wonderful promise. Hear these words. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. And I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord. I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. With their homeland gone, their temple destroyed, and Jerusalem burned to the ground, God's people needed to hear, God's not through with you yet. In an otherwise world, it is essential to believe confidently that Christ is the master of our fate, the captain of our souls. And in Romans 8, we have even more powerful words. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own Son, but gave him up for us all, How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No! No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Believe confidently. These are your two takeaways. Define carefully, believe confidently that Jesus is the master of your fate, the captain of your soul. This is the only way to deal with an otherwise world. 2019's gone. 
That candle has burned, the wick is now down, there's not much left. The good, the bad, the indifferent, the tears, the laughter. It's just about gone. But we have 2020 before us with its predictable and its otherwise moments. And as 2020 comes before us and unfolds, you need to define carefully and believe confidently that Jesus is the master of your fate, that Jesus is the captain of your soul, and what will certainly be an otherwise world. In in closing, let me quote from John Bloom of Desiring God. He posted regarding the Invictus and My Captain poems, and this is his summary comment. The incredibly good news is that in Christ who loved us and gave himself for us, Ephesians 5.2, we are more than conquerors, Romans 8.37. Ours is not a stoic resolve against mindless evil. Ours is a hope-infused, courageous resolve because come what may, the end will be glorious beyond all comparison, Romans 8.18. If Christ is the master of our fates, the captain of our souls, we have nothing to fear, 1 John 4, 18. We'll be sustained to the end with our scroll reading guiltless, 1 Corinthians 1, 8. All will work together for our good, Romans 8, 28. And though we die, yet shall we live, John eleven twenty five. To have an invictus soul is not heroic, it is unbounded foolishness. But to have a soul conquered by the greatest love that exists, John 15, 13, that then by God's grace can withstand the worst that evil can throw out us and be more than conquerors and then know eternal joy, Bloom writes, that is a life worth living. And I would add, that is the only life worth living in an otherwise world. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, I pray that each one here may know Jesus as the master, as the captain. If there's anyone here who doesn't, help that one to see in an otherwise world, there is no other way. And for those of us who do believe, help us to define carefully and believe confidently to the glory of God. In Jesus' name, amen.